Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers to find out more. Today on Heavy Networking, the ICANN has IP story. On the surface, ICANNHasIP.com is simple enough. You hit the URL and you get back your external public IP address, and that's it. There are no blinky lights, there's no banner ads, there's no listicles or lechery, just a tiny HTML page with the minimum number of tags required to render correctly. And many of you listening have probably used it before, and that's... That's kind of the problem. You aren't the only one who used it. ICANN has IP was and is popular, really popular. Our guest today is Major Hayden, the man behind ICANNHasIP.com, and he's going to share just how crazy popular this service he created in his spare time got and the lessons about efficiency and scale he learned along the way just trying to keep it running. Major Hayden, welcome to Heavy Network. I'm saying Major Hayden like like it's military. I know that Major is just your first name. That is your given name. So I apologize if it's like, you know, I feel like I should be saluting or something because I, whatever. Anyway, welcome to Heavy Networking, Major. And and start at the beginning, man. Why ICANHasIP.com? Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, the Major always gets people. It's, it's a little bit of a surprise. But yeah, that's the first name. So ICANHasIP uh, got its start when I worked at my previous company, Rackspace. We just acquired a company called Slicehost that sold virtual private servers. And we were bringing some of their machines into our network so that we could deploy them in our data centers. And we were deploying in their data centers. And of course, when you're working in a hurry, sometimes you make mistakes. And sometimes the mistakes are in hardware or software or networking. We had a lot of issues where you couldn't tell if the networking had already been set up for you or if the source NAT was correct or, or anything. So... I came up with an idea of saying like, why don't we just put a site out there on the internet that you could just hit from wherever and we could check and see if the IP on the outside is what we expect it to be. And so that's how ICANHAS IP came around. And the uh, the name came from, if anyone remembers the ICANHAS cheeseburger meme with the oh, yeah. cute little cat that yeah. looked like he was yeah. in a photo booth somewhere. <laughs> yeah, We thought it was hilarious. And so I just said, shoot, let's call it ICANHASIP.com. And I didn't realize that a lot of people are going to have a lot of trouble spelling it. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually we got it right and uh, added it to a bunch of scripts that we use when we deploy to make sure that like when the machine came up and networking said, okay, here's your machine. We wanted to make sure that all of the networking, not only the top of rack, but all the way out to the internet was set up correctly. So I think you built this around 2009 and it sounds like it was primarily for you and your team to just help you do your job. Right. So yeah, we just needed something that was super, super simple that you could throw into a script or even something as simple as a, as a bash script and just reuse immediately. So no extra stuff, essentially just the IP address and a line feed. <laughs> so you knew where to break. Cause we found that if you just put a null byte on the end of it, some HTTP clients would get upset with that. So we had to add a line feed. So I guess there's only there's only one extra bit of, of information in there that got added on. So what, what was the code? It could have been about anything that would return an external IP address. It's pretty easy to put that together, right? Yeah. So originally, I had gotten really excited about Python at the time. Uh, and so I had written it with uh, with Flask, you know, which is a you know just a really easy way to either build some APIs or build a front-end website where you say, hey, look, uh, here's a route. And if someone comes to this address, I want you to run this code and show them this template and out the door. 
So it was the world's smallest flask application, probably. I think it was smaller than the Hello World <laughs> yeah. flask offered on their website. But uh, yeah, that's how I got started. Just a real simple Python app running. I think it was even running, you know, with development mode turned on or whatever back at the time. So that's how it got its start. It's interesting you say Flask. I mean, you, if I don't know if Django was a thing back in 2009. I mean, you could have gone that route if it was, which is tends to be heavier, as I understand it, and and so on. And if you want to be a little tighter and more efficient, you use Flask. But still, this wouldn't have been a, an app, even the world's smallest Flask app, that was designed for efficiency. You just kind of like threw it together because it was easy. Yeah, we just needed a thing. You know, I mean, I didn't really think about deploying it. Like, I think I just threw it in a VM and, and, you know, ran it and let it go. Like, no, oh, that was, I think that was before system D like, so there was no init script or anything like just run it. And it worked out really well for us. It really helped with a lot of the provisioning stuff. And then I found myself using it in other strange places, like, you know, go to a coffee shop and I would hit it and say, okay, what's my external address? You know, what ISP is this coffee shop using, you know, just to find interesting things like that. So when did it start getting popular and did it take off internally or did it grow externally? What happened? So it kind of took off internally. There were other groups that had similar problems. So, I mean, we, we had dedicated servers as well that we'd put online for customers. And sometimes the networking was messed up. And so then um, technicians on the floor that were working on traditional dedicated servers, which is where I got my start at the company, started using it manually. And then someone said, hey, wait a minute, like, let's put this in some of the you know, we had this elaborate process that we did before we handed a server to a customer to make sure that everything was set up appropriately. And someone's like, let's just add it to the script and just make sure this matches up with what the customer should see when they log into the server. And so it happened there and then it got added to more scripts. And then I think people talked to people outside of the company and then people said, oh, geez, like that's really easy. There's no ads, there's no XML, there's no nothing. Like I just curl it and run it and go. And so then it got into more scripts and more scripts. And it, it just kind of started expanding from there. Got into more scripts as in there were just more and more people that were using it as an embedded part of some script because it gave them back the IP. It's sort of like an API. Right. And so that was kind of, you know, you didn't have a lot of the GitHub search capability back then. So it's kind of hard to tell like who was using it and stuff. But I would I would get emails occasionally from people saying, hey, you know, thanks for doing this. Or they would say, Hey, can you put this extra stuff in there? And I'm like, Hey man, it's just, it's IP address only. Like we're, we're not getting fancy in here at all. But I did for a while, put a couple of extra headers in there that people could grab, you know, with extra information. And that's kind of how some of the other sites started. Like I can has PTR and I can has trace route. It got its start there because people said, Oh, I would love if I can has this other thing. Um, <laughs> so then it just, I just kept adding more thing that uh, people can has. So when the it got rolled into a essentially a company process as part of standing up a customer instance, did you go back and sort of relook at the code or did anybody else look at it and say, are we okay here? Or are you just like, we know it works, have at it? More of the latter. Like we knew that it worked, but of course, eventually, like as more people hit it, then I started, uh, the issue became availability. So if there was, you know, um, you know, originally it was just running on one VM. Well, if there's an issue in that data center or that top of rack switch, then the site's gone. And so then I had to sit down and say, okay, wait a minute. Like I need more than one of these, obviously. So I built like five VMs and put the same, you know, thing in each one and use round robin DNS, which I learned is extremely entertaining because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> sometimes it works. And then sometimes one of the five just gets crushed while the other four have nothing to do. So, so part I'm laughing here in part because there's, there's a difference here where you said, as it's getting more popular, I need to scale it, where I might have gone, 
I don't think I want to support this thing the rest of my life. I'm going to start filtering this so not everybody can hit it. And I'll just apologize to the community or something. We'll just use it internally here at, you know, you were at Rackspace and, and, and that's it. But you said, no, let's go bigger. Well, it's, it's one of those things where um, my background is system administration. And then I kind of got into software development a little bit. Uh, I've never had a background in networking. I've just kind of learned it as I went along. Mm. And when it comes to being a developer is you want people to use your stuff. And if people use your stuff, then you get a warm and fuzzy feeling. But if they have a bad experience when they use your stuff, then it takes away from that. And so that's why I wanted to say like, okay, this thing has got to be up all the time. It's got to respond quickly. I want this to be usable for everybody. So that's where that came from. Well, let's get into some of the technical problems in, in a little more detail then. You uh, you told us you spread this thing out across five VMs, round robin DNS, and, and just talk through some of the technical problems that you ran into and uh, you know, and then you know beyond that, what you did next. So oddly enough, it did work pretty well for a while, the round robin DNS, but then things got a little bit out of hand because some of the nodes were getting beaten up with more traffic than the others. They were able to handle it, but I couldn't figure out you know, what the issue was. And then luckily a friend explained to me that, you know, not every DNS server is going to randomize the list, you know, that comes back. And so sometimes people just hit that first one and it gets sorted or something like that. So I had that issue. So then I thought, okay, well, I should probably get smarter and get load balancers and like a floating IP between the two and go that route. And so someone had talked to me about HA proxy. And so I set up HA proxy with two of them with a floating IP. And then I learned the joys of heartbeats and that if your network's not reliable, that the heartbeats are on, uh, you run into some challenges. And then each VM is trying to steal the floating IP from the other one. Well, were, you, were these all still in the same data center or you know, kind of in the same rack next to each other? You started spreading them out. Well, it depended on where the VMs landed because it was kind of uh, it was still on the slice host platform at the time. So you never really kind of knew where your things ended up. Uh, and so the challenge was is that if that network drop for any reason or the vms had an issue or the hypervisor under the vms like something went wrong for just a brief second and the heartbeat didn't make its way across a few times uh then you'd run into a whole bunch of problems you know i tried ha proxy for a while i tried linux virtual servers because i was excited about that because the actual servers on the back end would respond directly to the people that were requesting their ip address and so i thought well that's going to be less strain on the load balancers then I discovered the joys of IP and IP traffic and, and trying to filter that and, and then working with EB tables to keep the ARP responses from going out from the backend servers. And, and then suddenly they would at random times during the day. And the, yeah, it was a challenge. It feels like it feels like this could have been a full-time job, but I mean, what was it? You'd work on it and burst a few hours here and a few hours there when you could, or? Yeah, it was kind of a nighttime project thing. I think what really transformed it for me was it started to become more of a science experiment. I found it as a way to, it, it would force me to get better at being a system administrator because I was having to deal with some of the same problems that my customers were dealing with. And it forced me to learn networking. It forced me to learn more pieces of the Linux kernel than I had ever gotten into before configurations for, for different things and backlogs and all that craziness. So you are, you're getting this uh, experience, it's this development administration experience, but were you fronting all the costs yourself or did the, your employer help out? All the cost was on me. So uh, <laughs> the whole way through this, I had to figure out how can I make something really robust and reliable and useful on a shoestring budget, which gets very entertaining after a while because you know VMs do cost money and the traffic costs money. Yeah. And as both of those increase, 
you know, challenges start to happen. You have to figure out how to get more creative, especially when you look at clouds. And once you get your data into a cloud or once you get your application into a cloud, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm saving so much money. And then when traffic starts to come out, you're like, hey, wait a minute, where, whoa, like my cost just went through the roof. What happened? And so I had to kind of work around those. So usually I would look for providers that either gave me like a, a batch of bandwidth when I got the instance, like there's bandwidth that came with it. So I didn't have to pay extra. Eventually, when I outgrew VMs, I went to Hetzner in Germany. I probably mispronounced that. My German is not good. And the thing I loved about them was, is they had really good servers at a very reasonable price, and the bandwidth was extremely cheap. Well, let's contrast then. You said you outgrew VPS. What do you mean outgrew, and what were you getting from Hetzner that was better? So the challenge that I had on the VPS was I couldn't actually shovel packets through the network interface as fast as I needed to. So I eventually got to the point where I was on a couple of VPSs and I can't remember at which provider now, I'm probably not even going to mention it, but I, I had these issues where um, I had adjusted things like backlogs. I'd moved to Nginx at the time, put Nginx out in the front to, to handle TLS and SSL and all that. I had adjusted backlogs. I had adjusted kernel configurations. I had tuned all of this stuff, but for some reason, like you would curl the site, I'd curl it from my house and it would just hang. But then I go and look and you know, Nginx has got room to grow. Like the system doesn't look like it's being taxed. But then I started to realize the hypervisor that's underneath could not handle the packet load coming through. And when I actually asked the provider, they said, get a bigger VM, which was more expensive than going to get a dedicated so server. So they that's were throttling you then, you're, you're saying. They were, whatever the VPS was you bought, they had throttled you at some point because that's how they survive. So you're not the noisy neighbor that's clobbering everybody else in the rack. Right, right. Because at the time, I think with Zen back in the day, you'd run into some issues with the um, or the NetBlock driver, or yeah, then I don't, I can't remember the networking driver name. But there was a challenge with interrupts and how much you could send through, and it was great at throughput, but it was not great at tiny packets. Like a ton of tiny packets was where it got hosed, and so a lot of providers would go and limit, you know, how many of those packets could come out per second, and and a lot of them did it based on the size of your VM. So if you spent more money and got a bigger VM, they would let you get more packets through the door. And ICANHasIP.com is tiny packets. It's a tiny uh, get coming in from the client, and then it's a tiny response. It's not a you know 1,400-byte res- payload response or anything like that. It's it's very small. Right, right. I mean, the um, you know at the absolute basic level, I mean, if it's I think if it's an IPv4 response, I think it's under 150 bytes or something like that. So it's 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 very small. Of course, IPv6 is slightly bigger. Then I started putting emojis in the headers, you know, to get more entertaining. So that kind of increased it. Because <laughs> you got to have some fun with it after all. But. So can you put a dollar estimate on how much was coming out of your pocket to keep this up? Um, so in the beginning, when it was just a, you know, a few VMs, it was maybe under 40 to $50 a month, uh, which, you know, at the time was was an amount I could afford. But uh, um it eventually went up to uh, when I had a couple of servers at Hetzner, like I got very good servers there at a very good rate, but still, I mean, the price of what I was shelling out per month was about, you know, two to $300, but I was able to handle the traffic. All the traffic that I had was, was being handled. You know, and eventually I got to the point to where I, I had to, my initial fee at, uh, at Hetzner was probably about a hundred, but then I had to increase a bit to get on a machine with a better networking card. So I could make some adjustments there and, have a little bit more control over, over how the network works. So what you were doing at Hetzner, that was bare metal? Yes. Yeah, I was on dedicated there. 
And at two to $300 a month, you know, that doesn't sound like a lot, but over a year or a couple of years, that's serious money coming right out of your pocket. It's painful. And then, you know, that doesn't include the price for the domain and then also just the time to, to keep it up and maintain it. But by that point, it was one of those things where I was doing the trade-off between how much time do I have to sit down and work on this and optimize for cost and how much time could I write off by spending a little bit more? And so the the two to $300 a month did not last very long because that was, that was a lot of money to be spending on the site because I wasn't making any money off of it. I asked for donations, but I think, uh, I think the total was right around $75 from 2009 to 2021. So it, 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 <laughs> wow. did, it did cover a lot. What was your donation? I mean, how did you ask for donations? Was there a PayPal button somewhere or something? So there was a header for a while in the... Um, when you would hit the site, if you could hit it with curl and show the headers, there'd be a header in there. Yeah. And I, you know, basically just a couple people PayPal money to my email address. I'm not sure PayPal is a verb, but I'll use it like that. <laughs> and then later on, I decided to add Bitcoin in there because everyone's super excited about Bitcoin. And I think I ended up getting about $25 worth of Bitcoin, which I think now I should have kept it because it's probably worth about $200. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, in fairness to uh, the people who might have donated, you were fairly subtle about it. If you're putting it in headers, you know. Oh yeah, it was in the header, so you wouldn't see it unless you were really digging for it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So, so you out of pocket. Now you're on bare metal at Hetzner. You're still not globally distributed, right? It's still all living, coming out of a, a single physical site. In this case, somewhere in Germany. Right. Right. So yeah, the, I mean, the nice thing about it was is that I was able to handle all the traffic that I needed to handle. The downside was is that the latency to most of the planet was was not as good as I wanted. The Europeans had it great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I found there was a lot of traffic from East Asia and a lot of traffic from North America, you know, with with increased latency. And so some of that is is, is that I was on a part of the network at Hetzner that's a little bit less expensive. And so things are not prioritized as heavily. And of course, the other thing is distance, you know, light, light only goes so fast. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, this was a bare metal box. You mentioned you had some Nick preference or something like that. I, I take it you tuned these boxes to within an inch of their life to be optimized to deliver ICANNHasIP.com traffic. I did. Yeah. So there was, uh, oh man, there was quite a few things. Like I already mentioned backlogs before, you know, increasing the, uh, you know, the maximum connections, the maximum backlog. I, I ended up having to learn a lot about thin weight and that was very challenging. So major on your TCP backlogs. So you're talking about the number of connections inbound that you'll sit there and allow to stack up for the HTTP server to respond to. Is that what we're getting at? Right, right. So uh, with Nginx, I configured it to close the connection after every transaction because there's really not a reason to keep it open. It's not like you're at a new site where you're downloading JPEGs and you know all kinds of stuff all the time. There's just one thing you're getting. So I would close the connections, but the challenge that I was having was is I'd have so many uh, packets that were stuck in the, um, was it the thin weight, you know, basically waiting for the kernel to close them off. I'd get stuck with a ton of those. And so I'd have to increase that. It was just a, um, a game of whack-a-mole. I'd increase those. And then all of a sudden I could handle more on the front end. And then I'd have to increase that. And then I'd have to change the uh, contract, the connection tracking limit in the kernel. I'd have to go and keep adjusting that. And at the end, when it was still on the dedicated servers, I think my connection tracking limit was like 5 million. Uh, it was, it was something absurd because I had some spikes up to where it would cross the 2 million. So I was just like, forget it. I've got enough RAM. <laughs> Let's go to five. Uh, oh, that's nuts. That is, that is insane. How are you even coping with that? I, I mean, I, I say that from 
I used to support a payment gateway that would have a lot of inbounds and sometimes it'd be quite bursty. And so we'd run into these issues where our clients would come in, they'd have a whole bunch of tra payment transactions to process. They pound the XML gateway and it would fall over, but we couldn't figure out what it was. Long story short, it was TCP connections. We had, in this case, it was Apache, not Nginx, but we had to bump that connection up. That was in the tens of thousands, not the millions. I can't even get my head around millions of inbounds that you're sorting. Yeah. and and. Uh, you know, along with that, there was shenanigans like, you know, send floods, you know, people would uh, DDoS the site. I'd have to regularly go through there and deal with that. But then in the end, you still have to handle the traffic. There's nothing in front of me that would keep me from getting it. So if someone send flooded me or, or DDoS me, like I would have to, you know, I, I could find a way to keep Nginx from receiving those packets and having to process them, but the kernel was going to have to deal with them in one way or another. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, we dealt with these, with that problem specifically, SIN floods with a fancy IPS that would sit out in front of it and do hardware TCP proxying. So SIN floods and those kind of things, it was proxying the TCP handshake. So if there was shenanigans, it would discard all of those and the, the, the servers never had to really see that stuff. So if you're facing that on the server itself, dude, that sucks. Oh, I would. Yeah, I would have loved to have a device in front. But then again, you know, shoestring budget time. So there was definitely limited abil uh, availability for that. <laughs> okay. Did, okay, we got to get more into the nerdy stuff. But, but I, another question here. Did you get anybody to help with this thing from the community? I mean, we $75 in donations is not much, but some a sponsor, somebody. Yeah. So uh, finally, as things went along, you know, I went on Twitter and shared, you know, traffic levels and stuff like that. And people were blown away. And then finally, packet.net, which is Equinix Metal now, uh, someone from there reached out and said, hey, like, is there anything we could do to help? And I said, oh, my gosh, like, if you could help me with my dedicated server build, that'd be great. And so they offered up to sponsor the site. And so I ended up getting a couple of servers over there at no cost and ran the site there for a good while. And it was great because their their hardware is fantastic and they pretty much let me use whatever I wanted to. And the other nice thing about it too is they had some really good network cards that allowed me to get into like, uh, you know, packet coalescing and and deal with interrupts a little bit better than I could. The, the servers at HeadCenter were good, but the servers at Packet were better. So that was a huge help. TCP offloading to the NIC? Yes. So there was, it was they're, they're really good network cards compared to, um, I can't remember what they are. I think they're like something in the Intel X series somewhere. I can't remember the exact number, but they were great. Like when, when I went and used eTool to look at all the parameters I had available, I was like, what do these even mean? I've never seen these before. <laughs> so I had to go read documentation and, and all kinds of stuff to figure out uh, what knobs to turn. But that would help you get, get you some CPU back on the main, uh, the main metal then to focus on being an HTTP server and just dump some of the network um, interrupts and processing off to, well, effectively the smart NIC. Right. Yeah. So once it, once it got super busy, the number one problem I had, I had 99 problems and interrupts were 99 of them. Uh, <laughs> it felt like. So it was just uh, the majority of you know, the majority of the CPU time was spent just handling those interrupts. And so I had to find some way to curb it, you know, so I went ahead and did, learned a whole lot about NUMA uh, and, and how, you know, processors with more than one NUMA node can handle interrupts in more interesting ways. Then discovered that the network card had some capabilities as well for me to connect the dots between, you know, NUMA and the network card. And so that helped out a lot. And then eventually I started talking with some folks. I went to a Red Hat summit before I worked at Red Hat told some of the networking people the my plight uh, and they gave me a ton of suggestions and I went back and implemented them. 
but still I, I was barely keeping this thing afloat. I mean, it's just, the requests were insane. And, and I sent them back the stuff and they said, wow, you're going to need a bigger boat. Like, you know, it's kind of like Jaws. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean a bigger boat? Like, what do I need to tune? And they're like, no, no, no. You need like more servers and something in front of the servers. And you need this and that. I mean, when you're working at scale, it's so often chase the bottleneck. So where, what happened? Where's the new bottleneck now? Cause the architecture sounds like you've just tweaked this thing. It should be amazing. So where was the bottleneck? So I think the thing was, is that I didn't, I didn't want to overstay my welcome at packet. I didn't know when they would yell at me for too much spend. And so I, you know, optimized it as well as I could, but then it eventually got to the point to where, you know, I needed to probably build out more servers and deal with, cause I was using, um, uh, Equinix gives you ability to, to do BGP and do any cast. So you can have, you know, people in Europe can hit a European destination or whatever network is closest to that. Right, right. So that was great. But then the challenge was, is that it still would be lopsided. Like I'd have people in Germany and I'd have a node really close to them, but they'd go to the United States one. So it was getting blasted. And so that's when finally I said, look, there's gotta be something else. And I tweeted again about my frustration and someone from Cloudflare reached out. And they said, how could we help? And, and I said, well, I, I don't know, maybe we can put Cloudflare in front of the site. And so it did that and it reduced my TLS load quite a bit and improved things. So in, in front of the site, so what, where we're at now is, it sounds like you went from Packet where you had, a, again, a server or I don't know, some number of servers that were there, but in a location as opposed to globally distributed? So I had, I had them globally distributed. I think at Packet, I had uh, three at the time. And so, so then I put Cloudflare in front, just the, you know, their filtering capability. But still, still hosted on packet, but Cloudflare as the front end. All right. Right, right. And it cut down on a lot of the shenanigans. So they would go and, and, and do a lot of blocking for the DDoSs. I'd have people that would do these weird, like, I don't know what you, what it was happening, but it was like a half open TLS connection. Like they were basically just trying to burn all the CPU on your system, doing the initial negotiation, but they didn't actually want the IP address. And, and that comes into, there's a whole bunch of malware that was using the site that was frustrating. But uh, but no, the Cloudflare helped. Eventually they launched their workers product and they came to me and said, hey, would you want to put Icon SAP on workers? And so I'm like, what the heck is workers? Uh, and if you've never used it, basically what they do is they deploy your application at all their edges and they host it for you. And you have to write it in JavaScript and they've got some requirements about how you do it. But the awesome thing about it is that you don't have to think about networking anymore. You say, here's my application. And they go and run it for you. And they charge you based on how much CPU cycles you use and um, I think a few other things. And does workers also deal with the, the, the globally distributed component where you want people in Europe to go to a European data center, et cetera? Right. So it dropped the latency for everyone around the planet by a lot, which I was pretty excited about. And then uh, they sponsored me to use workers for free, which was really great because the bill would have been in the tens of thousands for the amount of traffic that I was putting through there. So, so kudos to them for, for doing that. But it was awesome because that reduced my stress a ton because then I didn't have to think about servers. I didn't have to think about code other than the small little bit of code that I would give them that they would then go and run wherever I needed to go run. I didn't have to think about TLS or, or any of that anymore. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. 
Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with Interoptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. You mentioned shenanigans, people doing, you know, badly behaved actors coming in and trying to impact the site. But then you also said malware. I think that's a different story. You haven't told that yet. Right, right. So it eventually got to the point where, you know, the site was getting more and more popular. Uh, and I would get contacted from time to time with these abuse requests or my host would get contacted with these abuse requests. And they would say, you know, hey, you've infected our network and now all of our machines are calling out to your site. And so I'm sitting there thinking like, what do you mean? Like all I do is return IP addresses, I'm super confused. And so I replied back and I'm like, okay, I'm really confused. Here's what my site does. I'd love to help you, like, what can I do? And a lot of the responses I got back were super angry. Like people were mad. Uh, And so then, you know, I started asking around, I have a friend of mine that worked for an information security company, I won't say, but, he said, oh, yeah, we've been seeing your site popping up on all this malware. And there's one called like Upatre, U-P-A-T-R-E. And it went around the world at the time and it just started beating the site up. And so then the problem was, is that it didn't send through a user agent. It didn't send through any identifying materials. So there's no way for me to block it. And so then what I started doing was I started looking at where the traffic was coming from. Since I had Cloudflare in front, it actually allowed me to see the ASNs that were hitting the site. And I would see you know, all of a sudden uh, an ASN that had never touched the site before is now the number one traffic source. And so then what I started doing was I, you know, and one popped up and it was a multinational petrochemical corporation, which I won't name. And so I emailed, you know, the the email address on the ASN uh, and heard nothing. And then the traffic kept increasing and I emailed it back and I was like, hey, this is not like, I'm not complaining about abuse. I think you may have a problem and I'm happy to give you any information you need to solve it. And I would get these really angry emails back from people sometimes. I had a, there was a CIO for a U.S. state uh, on the West Coast that emailed me and told me he was going to subpoena some stuff and it never happened. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so not only did you have to learn networking, you were starting to like, do I need to go to law school here too? What is happening? I was beginning to wonder. <laughs> So did you ever find out what it was the malware was doing, why it was pounding your site? Was there a reason for it? Yeah. So uh, with the help of a couple of people who work, you know, kind of doing red team, blue team type stuff for for some large companies, they they told me, hey, what they're trying to do is they want to find out the value of what they just got. So maybe they fish some people or maybe they put a download somewhere that is corrupt or bad or something like that. And they want to know who they got. They want to know, did, did they land at a company? Did they land at someone's house? Did they land at a government? And so what they were doing is they would call out to the site, grab the IP address, and then send it out. And then they'd receive it. And of course, you know, do a who is or, you know, whatever lookup they want. Say, oh, geez, you know, we landed at company X. Or we landed at a random house in Tennessee. Or, oh, now we landed at a government organization. Or we landed at a military contractor. Like, that's the things that they wanted to know. Because they want to know the value they want to be able to quickly assess the value of the target that they just hit. So they put all their effort into the right places. That's so interesting. How did that feel to you, you know, sort of getting involved in their schemes? 
it was frustrating because immediately my first response to my friends was, how do I stop it? Like, how do I identify what this traffic is or whatever? And for a few of them, you could, they actually were dumb enough to send through a user agent. So that was easily fixed. Uh, but then they realized that if they sent through no user agent at all, there was really nothing I could do about it. Like there was nothing identifiable from the request that I could look at and block or report mm -hmm. or anything like right. that. So right. that to me started to get really frustrating because I didn't want to be enabling that type of activity, but I, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference between that and, and real legitimate user activity. It's the spam and ham problem all over again. That's any true. any help from Cloudflare there where they could maybe fingerprint the incoming client request, uh, you know, do more than just parse the user agent and uh, ha come up with a clue? So they had they have a bunch of automated stuff uh, that goes through and looks for robot traffic. Like they've got like a bot fight mode, I think is what they call it, uh, where you can go and turn it on. And they look for traffic that doesn't look right. You know, I think one of the issues I had, too, was there was a call center somewhere in India, using the carrier grade net. And I don't know how many devices they had behind there, but they were making probably upwards of 30 to 40,000 requests per second, for, per second from buying this NAT device. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that device has <laughs> got to be melting right about now. But I, I mean, I would guess they had tens of thousands of computers behind there uh, that were making all this. So I ran into that problem quite a bit. And, and CloudStar did help because it gives you a lot of tools to go in there and say, okay, this, this AS number, like I'm done. Like I don't want anything else from there. So that, that was a little bit more helpful. Or if a company, you know, a multinational oil company said, yes, we are compromised. Can you somehow block your site from us for a while? Like then I could go in and say, okay, sure. I'll block your AS number. So at least the malware can't reach the site anymore. Well, did you have any happier stories like that where after the angry CIO says he's going to subpoena and you're like, it's not me. I'm being used by malware. It's not my fault. Uh, did you have any, any productive conversations to help fix things? Yeah, there was uh, there was a school district in Kansas. They showed up on there in pretty large amounts, and it was coming from. It looked like it maybe was coming something through the browser, something through Internet Explorer, based on the user agent. And so I reached out to them, and they actually were really responsive. And we emailed back and forth, and they said, you know, is it better? Is it worse? And we're going back and forth through this whole thing. It sounded like it was a school district that probably didn't have a lot of resources to deal with these types of problems. So they were really grateful for somebody to say. I think I know where your problem is. And then eventually they found it and were able to fix it. And it sounds like it was some kind of you know, some kind of browser extension or browser thing that had been installed across the district. And I don't know, but that was really positive. There were a couple others too, where I emailed people and they said, yep, we know 100%. We are on it. Thank you. <laughs> and that was pretty much the extent of the message. Because some of these companies were huge. Have you thought about or did anybody approach you about using this as part of, you know, a threat feed or an early warning detection system? And so people had talked to me about it. I had I had a bank reach out to me at one point and ask if they could get a live feed of my logs. And that put me kind of in a weird privacy dilemma because on sure. one hand, I wanted to help. And then on the other hand, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to share the logs with users. So what I started doing was I found a way to aggregate some back when I can actually handle the log traffic. I would aggregate it for them and then basically say like, you know, okay, from this slash eight or slash 16, here's what I'm getting. And here's the volume that I'm getting. So that way it was a little bit more anonymized uh, and they could find it. I did that for, I don't know, like a few months, but then I don't think they were getting any value out of it. And it was mm. a lot of work for me. And so I just quit. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you during all of this, it's still just you administrating all this, right? Just me. I'm, I was the only one. 
Well, I mean, you had the backing of the CIA. You were tied to former CIA Director General Hayden, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> that that was probably the funniest and most harrowing story I had to deal with, uh, that someone let me know about this. There's, there's a uh, distribution of Linux called Puppy Linux, and it's very small, and it's really good to use as a live CD, like especially you're trying to like fix a problem on a machine or something like that. But uh, what they want to do is they want a really cute way to print out like your external IP address when system booted. So, you know, right before you log in and print out and say your external IP is whatever. And so they called out to the site to do it. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't know they did it. I didn't know they added it. And then all of a sudden a forum started complaining about it. And a friend of mine in the puppy Linux community sent it to me. It's like, oh, you got to go look at this, man. They're talking bad about you. And so I went and looked and, and their assumption was since Puppy Linux was calling out on every boot to iconhasip.com and my last name is Hayden and the CIA was involved in a whole bunch of, you know, after 9-11, looking a lot more closely at what's happening in America. Yeah. They're like, well, obviously he's related to General Hayden, which means this is all a big CIA <laughs> ploy to get data from all of us and find out where our IP addresses are. And then someone accused me of stealing MAC addresses, which I had to go in there and you know, I had to take a can of paint to the water tower to go and, and you know, tell people like, hey, no, this is not this is not how any of this works. That's because that's so not how any of that works. Exactly. <laughs> right? I don't know. your. I couldn't get your MAC address if I tried. Like, that's a lot of work. Oh, man. This is OK. So much here. So much. You you did eventually hit the breaking point. I think I would have hit it, like I said, you know, about a year into this project as it took off. I would be like, whoa, 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 I don't know what's happening. I think I'm going to put the brakes on. You just kept running with it. But you did eventually hit the breaking point where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. So t- talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, it, it all started as a, you know, a project for us to use. And then it kind of turned into a passion project and, and science experiment. And it was kind of just exciting to see, you know, oh, how do I handle this much traffic? And then eventually it got to the point, and I'm trying to remember the day, I think it was maybe somewhere back in March, uh, around like March 15th or so of this year, 2021. And, you know, traffic levels were at about a one to one and a half billion requests a day coming into the site, which which is pretty high. And I think the, um, I, I'm trying to remember what the actual, it was terabytes of traffic per month. I think it was on the order of 30 to 40 terabytes per month. That's outbound only, of course. So, you know, inbound, you could probably look at that as being about the same. And so that was a lot. And then all of a sudden I started getting a few alerts over the weekend and I went in to take a look and the traffic had gone from what I was getting in a month, I started getting in a day. So the 1 billion turned into 31, 32 billion requests per day. Uh, And so my immediate thought was like, has the world become infected with some kind of malware or did Microsoft put me in Windows? Like what the heck happened? (laughs) Um, And so then as I started looking, you know, Cloudflare gives you some pretty sweet tools to, to figure out where your traffic's coming from. And almost all of it was the same user agent. And it was coming out of China from about, you know, 13, 14 different ASNs in China. And so me putting on my helpful hat, uh, the the user agent looked a lot like a, um, I think it was a device called EasyViz, like it's a home camera type of solution or whatever. And so I emailed the company and said, hey, I don't know what this means. Like, I don't know if your devices are compromised or if you're using the site, let me know. And then I started emailing the abuse addresses on the ASNs uh, and I never got a reply. And then someone's like, what ASN are you talking to? And I was like, this one, this one. And they're like, oh, you're not going to get a response from Chinese ASN. They're just going to keep sending you whatever they want to send you. Like, you're just going to have to deal with it. And then the company never replied. I tried to raise them on Twitter. I tried to email them. I tried all these other things and they never replied. And so finally, Cloudflare automatically started blocking 
most of the traffic from them, but the traffic just kept coming. And so then I thought, you know, I asked some friends like, well, how do I, how do I make these devices stop? And they're like, well, you got to do something that blows the code up on, on the devices. So I started tinkering in Cloudflare and returning a different response for just these devices. I tried returning emojis. I tried returning IP addresses with like totally incorrect numbers. I tried to return binary data. I tried to return, oh geez, I can't remember, just walls of text. Basically just trying to crush the client on the other end with an unexpected response it couldn't handle. Yeah, I was just trying to make them go away at that point. I tried 302s like to the company's website that made the camera uh, and none of that worked. Like basically these devices were just pounding the site and then they wouldn't obey anything that they received from it. So some of the people at Cloudflare thought that it may be a botnet trying to disguise itself as an IoT device. But but I'm not entirely sure. They would probably know that a lot better than me. So okay, that that's your that's your breaking point. You're at this point. You're like, okay, I've done what I can do, and but you didn't shut the site down. You didn't peace out. What what did happen? Right, I considered that because I was getting pretty angry. With over ninety something percent of my site was garbage traffic, and I thought, man, this is not why I did this. And so a friend of mine said, well, if it's a passion project, and you don't have the passion, get rid of it. And so I threw a Twitter poll out there and basically said, okay, what do I do? Do I sell this to somebody else? Do I close it down or do I just keep running it as is? And the top two responses by far were either sell it or kill it. Well, we'll sell it j- just to park on that for a second. When you have a site that makes that much, uh, has that much traffic, there is a potential there to make money. You'd think you might find a suitor that was interested in throwing probably serious money at you. I know you didn't go that way, but it had to be a thought in your head. So over the past couple of years, I've had maybe two or three people reach out and ask about buying it. And I think one was motivated by being able to put an API key on it or potentially some advertisements. And then I re-explained to them that I was like, you can't put advertisements when all you're returning is the IP address. You put it in the header like I did, but no one's going to see it. And then a couple of the other ones were information security firms that essentially just wanted to mine the data that was coming out of it. And so then I kind of sat down and had like an ethical dilemma, you know, hmm. of what do I do? And the, and the biggest thing that I kept thinking about was it started as a passion project. It started as something I care about deeply. I don't want this going into the wrong hands or being used in a bad way or, or something like that, because there's a lot of people who depend on it. And so that's when I thought, OK, either selling it or transferring it is probably the best bet. And so not long after I put that poll out there, you know, the fellow I've been talking to at Cloudflare a lot messaged me and said, Hey, could, can we do something? Like, can we take the site off you and help and, and run it for you? Like, what can we do? And so we eventually started tacking back and forth through emails. And I mean, the, the offers that I'd received for the site, I think the largest one was about 5k. Oh, that's not, that's cute, right. but it's not real money. And, yeah. and I, I think I got one for like a thousand dollars as well. So for me, it kind of felt like, and it's weird. Cause I, I tell you $5,000 is a lot of money. Like that's a lot, but on the other it's- hand, it wasn't, yeah, it it's, it, it's a lot, but it's not a lot, a lot. You know, it's not you know, yeah. 500,000 or a million or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, if someone offered 100,000, I might be doing this podcast from a Mercedes or something, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. But eventually it got to the point with Cloudflare where I was like, why don't, you know, why don't I just give you guys, guys, you know, this thing, but I have some requirements. And so I said, hey, look, like you got to keep running it the way it is. Like don't inject ads or do some kind of craziness, like keep it running. And the other thing that I really want y'all to do is if you get information from here, share it. So like if you see that someone's compromised or you think it's part of a big botnet, go fight it. 
like whether you cut the traffic off or whatever you're going to do, do it or, or tell people in the information security community, Hey, we're seeing this stuff. Like we got to figure this out. And, and they essentially said, yeah, absolutely. We'll do that. And then it came down to the transfer and they're like, well, do you want to sell it or do you want to just give it? And I was like, well, honestly, I, I'll just give it to you guys. If y'all just keep running it. Cause I, they're not going to give me a hundred thousand dollars for the site. I don't think it's going to happen, <laughs> but eventually the, uh, they said, Hey, look, legal's going to get mad if we don't at least pay you for the domain registration fee. And I was like, okay, great. How much is that? And they're like, well, hold on. We got to add the tax. And so they went <laughs> <laughs> and they say, well, it looks like it's $8 and three cents. I was like, sold. And so they, I got a little PayPal thing for $8 and three cents and, you know, transferred it over the, the weekend to them. And uh, they've been running it, running it since. Wow. $8 and three cents. <laughs> yep. I'm not going to spend it one place. I promise. Oh. There are probably venture capitalists in Silicon Valley crashing their Bugattis into hearing this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I, I don't think there was a really great way to get, you know, a ton of money value out of it. I could see for an information security company, if you wanted it as a feed, it, yeah. it could be pretty useful, but I think it'd be pretty challenging to just straight up monetize it as most traditional sites were, you know, add ads or API keys or something like that. So I'm curious with Cloudflare, did you just do this as sort of a handshake or was there actual like documents that you signed and stuff to get them to say, to, to, to abide by your agreement? How did, how did you get assurance that they would go with what you asked them to do? Yeah, it was a really short uh, agreement they sent over and, you know, and it and included the $8 and three cents on it as well. And so <laughs> signed it and sent it back and, and they were really great about it. Cause they were like, okay, like how do we make sure we do this right and this right. And let's make sure we get transferred appropriately. And what do you have with this? And so there's a lot of the technical stuff to make sure that they could bring it over without, you know, uh, putting it into a lurch. And I think everything transferred over a couple of people said they couldn't hit it, you know, for a couple of seconds, but I think there were some DNS changes that were getting propagated down. Uh -huh. So, um, so now it's, it's still running with them and uh, still seems to be running well. And the thing I was worried about, too, is I know some people, you know, they're worried about centralization of the Internet and more things run by the same companies or whatever. But I, I will say everything that I've gotten from Cloudflare has been above board and, and they've been super helpful and, and collaborative. So it's been good. What does it feel like to have created something that became so useful and so popular, but caused you so much angst that eventually you gave it away? It's interesting. So in one way, uh, it is a lot nicer because I can sleep at night knowing that I don't have to worry about the scale or what's going to happen the next day or some abuse request is going to come through or whatever. That's pretty nice. On the other hand, it's kind of sad to see it go. But then I think I took it about as far as I could take it as like a one man show. So I, I'm glad to see it live on. And the, the, the eight bucks is, is, is pretty, you know, not burning a hole in my pocket or anything, but uh <laughs> But yeah, no, it was, it was a good experience and I'm, and I'm happy to see it go. And now I'm trying to think, man, if I was to do this again, what would it be? But I still have the other sites. So like the, if you want your pointer record or, you know, trace route and stuff, I still have those sites as well. Yeah. Tell us about your other, your other passion projects. Yeah. So uh, on my blog on, on major.io, there's, there's an FAQ that explains, you know, the other sites that are on there, but I have like, I can has PTR. So it's kind of like I can has IP, but instead of returning your IP, it returns the pointer record, the reverse DNS record. And then I've got I can have I can has trace and I can has trace route.com. The one with route on it will give you a trace route back to you uh, with all the DNS names resolved. If you do I can has trace without the route, you'll just get just the IP addresses. 
So it works on V4 and V6. Um, I also have, Icon has Epoch, E-P-O-C-H, like so you can get the current Epoch time. Also have one called Icon has E-I-C-A-R, I-C-A-R. It's like the string that you use to test antivirus or IPSs or anything like that. It's just a, it's a generic string that if you see it come through, the IPS should trigger uh, every time. So you can actually curl it from anywhere and figure out if your IPS is working or, you know, stuff like that. And I think that may be all that I have. I used to have another one called Icon has ASN, but I think I killed that one off a while back where you get your AS number, but it just got, it, it was too hard to keep up with. Do you have any big projects planned for the future? Oh man, I don't know. Like that's, um, <laughs> I'm I, not I saying definitely you don't, don't have enough to do. I'm just wondering. I don't have anything really uh, planned with regards to this, but I don't know. I may come up with something else that, you know, I don't know, may turn into something as big, but but likely not. <laughs> well, if people want to follow you and hear about the next big announcement coming from Major Hayden, where where would they go? So the the blog is uh, major.io, M-A-J-O-R.io. And then uh, you can find me on Twitter as uh, Major Hayden. And that's that's usually where I am. But you yeah. got to be able to put up with dad jokes and memes uh, <laughs> occasionally. Dad jokes and meme. You, you found your tribe, my friend. I think, uh, I think that's all good. Major, the really fantastic story. I have enjoyed this thoroughly. Uh, Major.io. If I'm not subscribed, I very definitely will be. I think I found this story originally on Hacker News and uh, will follow your continuing career with great interest and, uh, and look forward to any of the projects that you're doing next. If you're out there listening, we hope you enjoyed this story here on heavy networking. If you like this, and other of our fine free technical podcasts. You can find it all at packetpushers.net along with our community blog. That's people like you writing stories like this one or the latest switch that you figured out a thing on or the new firewall policy that you wrote that you want to share with the world. You can do that. Just let us know that you'd like to post at packetpushers.net. You can hit us up on Twitter at packetpushers or on LinkedIn. We're there as well. Uh, our Slack group is free and open to the whole wide world. All you got to do is go to packetpushers.net slash Slack, read the rules, and then sign up. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>